This evening we celebrate Thanksgiving, and we get ready to continue celebrating with our family feasts tomorrow. <clears throat> and I wanted to, um, as we do that, I wanted to talk about the importance of contentment. Contentment. There really isn't any true giving of thanks where there is no contentment. And who better to teach us about contentment than Solomon? You say, uh, uh, Pastor, uh, could you just remind me again, who, who, who was that? I've heard, I know the name, but who was that? Solomon was the man, he was the king in Israel, the king who had everything. He had everything. And learned that better things and better circumstances are not the secret to contentment. The Bible book called Ecclesiastes is, is attributed to his authorship. It's a book of wisdom. In it, Solomon is writing as an old man, looking back on his life, sharing from his mistakes. He's mentoring us, and really it's the Holy Spirit mentoring us through what he wrote, on how to live a life of lasting joy in a world where things don't last. Now, if you have any acquaintance with Ecclesiastes, you'll sometimes hear people say that the point of the book is that life is meaningless. There's a phrase in there, meaningless. That's how it begins, actually. Meaningless, meaningless, all is meaningless. But that is not the meaning of the book. <laughs> it's absolutely not Solomon's point. Not that life is meaningless, but it is that life is short. He emphasizes that. Life's a vapor. And so the question is, how do we get a sense of lasting joy and contentment in a world where nothing lasts. Well, there's an excerpt from uh, chapter 5 of Ecclesiastes printed in the bulletin as the Old Testament reading, and I'd like to read it together uh, with to you now, from Ecclesiastes 5. This is what I have observed to be good, that it is appropriate for a person to eat, to drink, and to find satisfaction in their toilsome labor under the sun during the few days of life God has given them. For this is their lot. Moreover, when God gives someone wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them, to accept their lot and be happy in their toil, this is a gift of God. They seldom reflect on the days of their life because God keeps them occupied with gladness of heart. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, it jumps out from this passage that God wants you and me to enjoy life. It's, it's like right there. The God of the Bible, the true God, verse 18, he wants you to eat and drink and find satisfaction. And therefore, we've got a practical point of application right off the bat. Eat guilt-free seconds tomorrow at dinner, okay? Have a second slice of pumpkin pie with whipped cream and find satisfaction in that. We've got the biblical warrant for it right here. Now, obviously, that's not the main point. The main thing that God is driving at through the wisdom of Solomon has to do with the experience of contentment. True biblical faith, true Christianity is meant to have the effect, it is meant to result in deep contentment in believers. St. Paul in Philippians 4.11 talks about, he talks about being brought low and at other times abounding, he talks about having times of need, other times having abundance, but he says, I have learned in whatever situation I am in to be content. Paul says that he's learned the secret of contentment. Solomon here is making much the same claim, 
They want us to understand how important contentment is and how to have it. Because Solomon knows something. He knows that many, many people are living with discontentment, for sure. In every congregation that's meeting this week, in every home, in every bar, in every stadium, in every hospital and health club, there's someone who thinks, if only I were like him or like her, or if only I were stronger, if only I were taller, cuter, smarter, younger, healthier, or wealthier, then I would be happy. If only my parents were different, if only my kids were different, or my job were different, then I would be set. I would be satisfied. The very fact that we think like this only goes to show that we need to reconsider our whole approach to contentment. On this Thanksgiving evening then, evening then, I want to answer three questions in this message. What is contentment? Why does contentment really matter? And how do we get it? Three aspects of contentment for us to look at. So, what is contentment? Our passage from Ecclesiastes puts us into it with words like um, satisfaction, which is in the text, and another phrase, ability to enjoy. That's getting us there. The dictionary defines contentment as feeling of satisfaction in one's possessions, status, or situation. Satisfaction. Here's how I think the wisdom of Scripture would put it all together. Contentment is realizing how much you already have, how much God has already given you, and how rich you already are. A, a crucial word to notice there is already. Contentment is not future-oriented. You know, if I had more, if I had different. It's taking stock and taking satisfaction in what's here already. This is Thanksgiving Eve. Do you know what keeps you and me from being more thankful than we are? Discontent. Ever since the beginning of creation, when the first creatures came from the hand of God, there's always been someone, somewhere, unhappy with his position in the universe. It all started with an angel, as a matter of fact, named Lucifer. I think you've heard that name the brightest star of the heavenly firmament, who is not satisfied to be the apex of God's creation, the highest of the angels. He wanted something more than his assigned position as the greatest of all created beings. His seething discontentment caused him to lead a rebellion against the Most High. Fully one-third of the angels joined with him in his abortive quest to overthrow the throne of the Lord. And for his rebellion, he and his followers were kicked out of heaven. Ever since that dark day, he has been known as Satan and the devil. Lucifer became Satan and the devil. And he's been the implacable foe of God and of all his works and of you and me. It was discontentment that made him do it. And discontentment has been one of his best weapons ever since. His earliest triumph came in the Garden of Eden when he sowed seeds of discontent in Eve's unsuspecting heart. By misquoting the Lord, I won't, I won't replay it, I hope these passages are somewhat familiar to you, I'm not going to replay it all here, but by misquoting the Lord, he made Eve think 
that God was somehow trying to cheat her, made Eve think that God was trying to keep her down, to keep her from becoming like God. And so Eve, this discontent seated in her heart by the devil, took the forbidden fruit and ate it. And she gave it to Adam, and he ate it. In this way, sin entered the human bloodstream, and it was discontent that created the entry for it. Take note, because that's still the strategy Satan uses to bring you down and me down. What happens? The seeds of discontentment are sown in our hearts, and then they bring forth a bitter harvest of disobedience, which led Adam and Eve to lose paradise, and which still leads us to lose happiness and to lose so much good in our lives, in our families, in our world. It opens the door for evil. Ever since Adam and Eve fell for the discontentment strategy, we've been an unhappy race. After Eden, we have never fully been satisfied with anything on earth. And we're still not satisfied thousands of years later. We always want something more or something different. If we're young, we want to be older. If we're old, we wish we were younger. If it's old, we want something new. If it's new, we want something even newer. If it's small, we want something bigger. If it's big, we want something really big. If we have $100, we want $200. If we've already got $200, we want $500. If we have an apartment, we want a condo. If we have a condo, we want a house. If we have a house, we want a bigger house, or a new house, or a nicer house. Or maybe no. Now we want to scale back and get into an apartment again. If we have a job, we dream of a better job, a bigger job, a closer job, with a bigger office, a better boss, better benefits, more challenge, bigger opportunity, nicer people to work for, and more vacation time. If we're single, we dream of being married. If we're married, well, I'll let you finish that for your... Unfortunately, not, unfortunately, none of this is unusual. It's, this, is, this is called situation normal I'm describing here for the human race. Here's five signs that discontentment is dragging us down spiritually. Number one, envy. The inability to rejoice in the success of others. Number two sign, uncontrolled ambition. The desire to win at all costs, no matter what it takes or who gets trampled in the process. Number three, a critical spirit. The tendency to make negative, hurtful, cutting remarks about others. Four, a complaining spirit. The disposition to blame others or bad circumstances for our problems. The inability to be thankful for what we already have. And five, outbursts of anger. Angry words spoken because our expectations were not met. In contrast, a contented person realizes how much they already have. How much God has already given them. How rich they already are. The discontented person looks around and says, I deserve something better than this. Because he's never happy, never satisfied, not really. And more he drags others into that swamp of discontent with him. Why does contentment matter? 
I came across a quote by Benjamin Franklin as I researched this sermon, and I thought he said it well. He said, contentment makes a poor man rich. Discontent makes a rich man poor. Now that's clever in a Benjamin Franklin kind of way, but I think it's making much the same point as verse 19 from our reading in Ecclesiastes tonight. There Solomon speaks of God. God, yes, giving wealth and possessions, but in addition, it also speaks of being given a second thing, the ability to enjoy them. That's contentment. The point is it's a second thing, not the same thing. It's not identical with merely having more or different possessions or, or more different status or a situation. Which is why a man could have tons of possessions but without also having contentment, Franklin said he's poor. But another man could have very few possessions. But if he has contentment with them, then Franklin said he's rich. They're not the same. We think, oh, if I have possessions or whatever it is I want, I'm automatically content. Oh, no, no. They're two different things. And you can have one without the other. Franklin is right. Contentment is the secret to the happiness that you wish for. But discontentment is the cancer of the soul. It eats away our joy. It does. It corrodes our happiness. It destroys our outlook on life and produces a terminal jaundice of the soul so that everything suddenly, or not suddenly, everything continually looks negative to us. And at the heart of discontent is a lie. A lie that we have decided to believe. Maybe millions of others believe it and we're going along with it. That we will not be happy or we will not be satisfied until we have more or until we have different. We've decided, I say, to believe this. So we cannot be happy because we will not be happy. We cannot be satisfied because we will not be satisfied. And such a person is truly a lost soul, miserable today and miserable tomorrow. Then let's get quickly to our third and final question. How do we get contentment? Remember, it's realizing how much you already have, how much God has already given you, and how rich you already are. The problem with many of us is we approach Thanksgiving focused on the circumstances of our life. Far too many of us take our happiness and our joy by how things are going on the outside. The Bible says, though, it's not like that. Contentment is not a matter of outward circumstances. It's a matter of understanding. It's a matter of what you believe about what you already have. What do I need to believe to be content? Two things. First, that I don't deserve any of it. Wow, that, that doesn't come naturally, but it's true. Whatever I have is far more than I actually deserve. And second, that whatever I have has been given to me by God. It's a gift. It's a gift from him, which he's been pleased to give me because he loves me far more than I can even imagine. In our passage from Ecclesiastes 5 about contentment, do you know what the key word in that passage is? God. 
The word God appears four times in three verses. Well, that's actually kind of unusual for the whole book, but in, in, the, in, the, in the bright passages in Ecclesiastes like this one, the word God is all over it. Not only that, but the cont- content person realizes God is constantly doing something. Verse 18, God has given. Verse 19, when God gives. Also verse 19, gift of God. Verse 20, doesn't use the word gift, but it says God keeps them occupied with gladness of heart. So this is the point. If you think that God is giving you all sorts of things because you deserve it, then you don't really believe he's giving you gifts at all. No. If you think you deserve it all, you think what he's really doing is paying your wages that you deserve. You're only just getting what you deserve. And you know what? With that belief, contentment is going to fly out the window and stay out the window. Because that line of thinking never really believes that you're being paid enough. Not enough. I got some people who love me. They don't love me enough. I got some money. It's not enough. And on and on and on. Secretly or not so secret, you think, I deserve more. I deserve to be better treated, etc. Discontent. The way out of that is to believe what the Bible says about what you really deserve. What do you really deserve? Listen to Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death. Have you ever sinned? Ever told a lie? That makes you a liar. Ever stolen anything, anything at all? That makes you a thief. Ever taken God's name in vain? That makes you a blasphemer. Ever got really angry at someone so that you angrily called them a name? Jesus said that makes you a murderer in your heart. Now what do you think liars, thieves, blasphemers, and murders in the heart deserve? And that's only four of the commandments. Here's how it's put in the catechism. What have you deserved from God because of your sins? Answer, his wrath and displeasure, temporal death and eternal damnation. So I'm telling you, dwelling on what you think you deserve and how you should be treated, that is a dead end. Get off that line of thinking. Think instead about what God has done to save you. Save you from what you deserve. The catechism asks, what has Christ done for you that you trust him? Answer, he died for me and shed his blood for me on the cross for the forgiveness of my sins. How much God must love you that he would take on himself what you deserve, wrath, displeasure, death, and then give you abundantly what you do not deserve, forgiveness, his loving presence right in your heart, eternal life in heaven, and blessings and blessings and blessings of all sorts in this present life. You don't deserve any of them, not one, but God gives them to you, all of them gladly. Not because you deserve them, but because he loves you. He loves you. Do you want to get really content? Then understand how much you already have from the hand of God and compare that with what you deserve. Contentment will well up. I want to finish with this. In his autobiography, Just As I Am, Billy Graham recalled a story 
He wrote, some years ago, Ruth and I were on an island in the Caribbean. One of the wealthiest men in the world had asked us to come to his lavish home for lunch. He was 75 years old, and throughout the entire meal, he seemed close to tears. I am the most miserable man in the world, he said. Out there is my yacht. I can go anywhere I want to go. I have my private plane, my helicopters. I have everything I want to make my life happy. Yet I am as miserable as hell. We talked to him and prayed with him, trying to point him to Christ, who alone gives lasting meaning to life. Then we went down the hill to a small cottage where we were staying. That afternoon, the pastor of the local Baptist church came to call. He was an Englishman, and he too was 75, a widower who spent most of his time taking care of his two invalid sisters. He was full of enthusiasm and love for Christ and others. I don't have two pounds to my name, he said with a smile, but I'm the happiest man on this island. Billy Graham relates how he asked his wife Ruth after they left, who do you think was the richer man? She didn't have to reply because they both already knew the answer. And may God bless you and God bless me. God bless us all with contentment and what God's already given us this Thanksgiving. Amen. Now may the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus for life everlasting. Amen.